Uh, please would you open your Bibles to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, we're in verse 8 this morning. We've been looking at the last few weeks. We've been, we've been looking at the issue of leadership. Um, we've been talking about men. We've been talking about elders. And uh, last week we looked specifically at elders and the role that they play in the church and the characteristics of what elders should be. And uh, this morning's text actually deals with deacons. It deals with what deacons look like. And so all that to say, things get quite uh, interesting, get complicated, and get repetitive as you look at the characteristics of elders and the characteristics of deacons. But what I'd like to do this morning is just to highlight a really interesting scripture. It's verse 13 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's, uh, it's the reward that deacons get and uh, how that applies to our lives. Now, if you're new to church, you're going, deacons, elders, I don't understand what he's talking about. I mean, he lost me on we're in a series because my series, you know, is like suits on TV. I don't know what he's talking about. So we're in the middle of going through one of the books of the scriptures, and the book is 1 Timothy, and uh, we're in uh, the third chapter of that book. Uh, we're looking at uh, this young man. His name's Timothy, has a letter written to him by an older, um, an older leader, and the older leader is basically telling him, I want you to establish good structure for the church. I want you to hang a plumb line um, and set up the right kind of leadership in this church, the right kind of practice in this church, so that the church can be built uh, together and can be strong. Uh, he, he dealt with last week and the week before, we looked at how men should be worshiping in church and taking the lead, and, and what elders, those who lead the church spiritually, what they should look like and what they should do. And after that, he goes, right, but there's another group of people who lead in the life of the church. You have this group of leaders called elders, but then you have another group of, of leaders who, and their role is um, the practical leadership in the church, and these are called deacons. Um, and, uh, and, and so he says, these guys, it's their role um, to serve in the life of the church and minister into the life of the church. And the church is not uh, the one that has the sole mandate on this. In fact, we inherited this from a rich history of Judaism, from, from the history of Judaism that the church came out of is this concept of serving the poor and looking after those um, amongst us. And so in the, in the life of Judaism, every Friday, somebody would come knocking on your door. And that person would, uh, would say to you, hey, we're coming to collect the offering for the, the poor and the needy, um, the orphan and the widow and the alien. Uh, please, can you give us uh, something for the collection? And you would give them food, you would give them money, and that would be done every Friday. And then that which was collected was then distributed to those who were in need. Uh, and uh, it was distributed by a small committee of about two or three people. And they would decide who's needy and who would get. And they would give those families or those individuals enough for 14 meals. So that's two meals a day for a week. And if they were still in need the next week, they would take more and they would give to that person again. So anyone who was in need would, would get food for them or their family. The rule was simple, though. It was this. You had to be in need, and that meant that you could not have um, provisions for uh, seven days. If you had food in your pantry that could last you seven days, uh, or, then, then they wouldn't give to you food from the collection. So it, it, it defined what poverty was, and it also defined what generosity was, because it said, hey, you give from the overflow so we can help those who are poor. And by the way, the poor are not those who just have a smaller TV screen to you. The poor are those who don't have enough food for the family right now. They need food. That's what poverty means. And so kind of applying to church, it would mean something like this. As a church, we have a pastoral fund and we help people who are in need. 
sometimes a family in our church will uh, lose a job of the main breadwinner and, um, and we would need to come along and help as well. Sometimes there are families that are in constant need. But it would mean like this, that if you go to the synagogue in this case and say, I need help, if you were coming to the church and saying, I need help, it would mean this, don't ask for money for food if you still have DSTV. Right? Okay, that's what it means. Don't ask for money for food if you've still got a seven-day supply. Don't ask for money for food if you've got DSTV and you've got a garden service and you're paying and you've you got all these things being paid, but, uh, but now you're like, hey, I don't, you know, we don't have any steak. You know, can somebody give us some steak? You know, we don't have any steak. That's not poverty, all right? That's just bad financial planning, <laughs> okay? So, so it defined what it was. Not only was this group that came every Friday to ask for um, if you had anything, but there was also um, a collection taken every single day. So every single day, you as a Jewish person would get a knock on the door. Hey, we need some food for those who are in need. The everyday offering was for those people who needed emergency care. So the Friday offering was for those who were the widows and the, those who were in need all the time. But the, the rest of the offering was for those who were in emergency, who needed emergency help right now. Their house burnt down. They have nothing. We can't tell them, hey, you know what? Bad luck. Today's Monday. If you can just hang out for another five days, I'm sure we can help you with food. Would that? No, no. They take an offering, offering regularly for those who were regularly uh, coming into need or for uh, emergency aid. So these were these two groups. The church learned from that. And as the, as the church um, grew from its infancy, um, starting out in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people coming into the church, um, coming to know Christ, spreading out across the known world, the church realized very quickly that there are people in need within its own ranks, and it's important to look after those people within their own ranks. And so those who are leading the church, the apostles, they, they're looking after the preaching and the teaching. They're looking after setting up structure. They're looking after how we worship together. They're, they're helping people to understand what it means to walk with Christ, and they're seeing people in need, and so they're helping people in need. They're trying to connect those who are selling their land and giving their money so that they can buy um, goods for those who are in need. They're trying to administrate the whole thing. And by the time we get to Acts chapter 6, and there's only 28 chapters in Acts, by the time you get to Acts chapter 6, there's already an argument that brews within the church. And the argument goes something like this. One group versus the other group. Your widows are getting food. Our widows are not. Uh, this means that you're probably favoring these widows and you're not favoring ours and you're not being fair. And we give to this as much as these people. So why are we not getting, but they're getting there's this horrible argument that breaks out and the apostles go, hang on here. We can't actually do everything. So we're going to ask you to go and appoint seven guys. And these seven guys, full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit, are going to take this off our tray. And they are going to be the ones to look after the widows and those who are in need. And this little prototype develops. Um, some have argued it's the prototype for deacons. Maybe it's not. But the point is, these guys did what deacons do now. So within the church, you have these two groups. The one that leads spiritually, takes the spiritual lead of the church. These are the elders. If it was a business uh, definition, it would be these guys look after strategic leadership. The deacons look after practical leadership in a business definition. That would be operational oversight. So, so strategic oversight, spiritual, operational oversight, practical. These two groups that work together. The role of the deacons is essentially to come with a tray and say to the elders, give me everything from your tray that would take your attention off 
the ministry of the word, prayer, spiritual leadership of our church, looking after doctrine, direction, and discipline. Give me all of that stuff, and I will take that onto my tray. And then there are other teams of leadership or other ministry teams who take things off the deacon's trays. So uh, you arrived here this morning, and um, some of our, our deacons were here, and uh, our deacons who are on duty today are wearing black golf shirts so that you know who they are. But you'll notice there's a heap of other people wearing black golf shirts as well because we have deacons who are taking off the tray of the elders, and you also have a hospitality team who are taking off the deacon's tray so that the deacons can take off the elder's tray so that we can focus in on what we're doing. In this passage we're having a look at today, it describes this group of people, the character of those, but then it gives you in verse 13 the reward of those who serve well. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to take a look at that scripture, the last one, and spend a bit of time on that. But in order to get there, I need to talk about what deacons do, and I need to talk about a very interesting concept of assurance of salvation. And you wonder, how on earth did he connect serving and deacon deaking with assurance of salvation? I'm going to show you now. I grew up in a, a time period where um, youth ministries and youth rallies were at their peak. Uh, it was great, and it was normal for your youth group to all jump in, which is maybe 40 people to all jump into a combi, all of us in the combi at the same time, to kind of hang on the windows, to drive down to another church, no safety belts. We didn't do that kind of stuff in those days, and we lived. And, and so you get all the way there, and, and then to have a youth rally, which is going to seem foreign for some of you if, you're not, if you didn't grow up in church, and it would be a whole lot of young people who should be clubbing, who are now in a church singing songs and worshiping, and then some guy would come and he would preach a message, and the message he would preach uh, would be aimed at those who don't know Jesus, but often it was those who did know Jesus who responded, because it would go something like, here I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice, open up that I could come in, and I would be sitting there. I'm a Christian. I've given my life to Jesus when I was 11. Now I'm 16 or 17, and I'm going, yeah, I hear you knocking. I'm going to open up. And then the guy would follow that up with another one, and it would be like this. If you acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. If you do not acknowledge me before men, I will not acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. And I'm going, okay, I want to acknowledge you now, Jesus, before men. And then he would go, um, but I want to remind you that not everyone who calls out Lord, Lord will be saved. Now, I don't know about you, but at this point, I reckon even those of you who are Christians are going, maybe if he gives an altar call right now, I'm coming to the front. Because that's what would happen. Then, then the guy would give an altar call and say, I want you to stand up right now. Remember, you acknowledge Jesus in front of men. He'll acknowledge you. He's waiting to acknowledge you before the Father. Are you going to stand up? Man, we stood up and we came to the front and we gave our lives to Jesus again and again and again and again. And we were born all over the time again and born again. And we lived in the maternity ward of, of spirituality in those days. <laughs> But you know what the thing was? For many people after doing that, you'd walk out the back door and cram into the combi again and go, I wonder if I did it right this time. That's it. I wonder if I did it right. And so we wondered, are we really saved? Am I really a Christian? And this issue of assurance of salvation played in our minds. And you know what? It didn't only play in our minds then. For many of you, it plays in your mind all the time. Am I really saved? Can I really be sure that I'm a Christian? What happens if I'm not? What happens if one day I get there to the pearly gates and Jesus goes, I never knew you. 
And you're like, but I did it. I acknowledge you. Jesus goes, nah, I just didn't know you. So I want to talk today about deacons. This interesting connection between deacons and assurance of salvation. And then I want to talk about the link. that, And, and it's really encouraging for us. And I hope it will be really encouraging for you today. So let's read the text and then we'll fly straight through. Verse 8 to verse 13 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's on the board behind me if you don't have a Bible. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine. If you were here last week, you'll remember some of the, 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 the echoes, this echoes from last week, the um, qualifications of overseers or elders. Not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And that let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves to be blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife. And because we know that deacons can be both men or women, the wife of but one husband. Managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons, and here it comes, verse 13, this is the key. This is what's going to link assurance and deacons. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. They gain a good standing for themselves. That is, they gain a good reputation for themselves in the faith. They, uh, the, the, the original carries this meaning of being put on a pedestal, but we have that in a negative sense in our culture and our language today. But it was, they would be, they would be in a positive way put on a pedestal. In a positive way, people would look at those who serve well and go, man, I want to be like that, all right? They get a good reputation from serving well. But not only that, they also get great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Great confidence in their faith. The NIV says they gain great assurance of their faith uh, that is in Christ Jesus. So first question we want to just talk briefly about as we get through this over here is deacons. What, what is a deacon? What does he do? It comes from this New Testament word that literally means to serve, to wait on tables. That's what it, it literally means. And there are a couple of good examples of this. So here's some examples of how this word is used to serve. Let's go back one slide over there quickly, Em. Uh, let, no, let's go forward a little bit. I just want you to know I really messed up the slide. So Em's trying to find a way through what I messed up. All right, here we go. So what is a deacon? Here are some of the examples. Those who served at the wedding in Canaan. Remember when, uh, at Cana, remember when Jesus turned the water into wine and the servants came and they brought those servants, uh, the word deacon is used for them. So just context, I'm not saying the deacons brought in big jars of wine. That's what deacons do. No, no, I'm saying it's serving, all right? Uh, Paul uses this in 2 Corinthians and Colossians when he speaks about how he serves the new covenant. He's a, a deacon, a servant of the gospel. He's a servant of the church. Timothy is called God's servant or God's deacon in 1 Thessalonians. The disciples are told that they should not only want to be, they should not want to be served, but they should serve like Jesus in Matthew um, chapter 20. Martha was so concerned that she was deaking and her sister wasn't helping her to deke. When, uh, when she was serving in the kitchen in Luke chapter 10, Jesus said, I've come to deek, not to be deeked, in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28. And Peter's mother-in-law, she gets up from her sickbed to serve, to deacon those who are in her house as her guests in Matthew chapter 8. 
There were a group of women, I, didn't know, I don't know if you knew this, but there were a group of women who followed Jesus and supported his ministry financially. Out of their pockets, it says they deked, they served Jesus. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 44 probably summarizes Christ's idea of what serving or ministering uh, looks like. It doesn't say this is what deacons do, but it's a good example of what Christian service and Christian ministry should look like. So have a look at this. It's Matthew chapter 25. And we've got that one. Thank you. They will answer. They also will answer, Lord. This is when Jesus has separated the sheep. It says in the last time when Jesus comes to judge the world, he will separate the sheep from the goats. The goats are those who don't believe in Christ. The sheep are those who put their trust in him. And then he will say to the sheep, um, he will say, uh, he will say, enter into this place because when I was hungry, when I was thirsty, etc., etc., you gave me something to eat, you gave me something to drink. They will say this, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and, and did not help you? Sorry, this is the goats who he's saying, he says the same thing to both, but this text is saying to the goats. He replies this, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. The point is this, Jesus is saying that our salvation on judgment day, that there's a reward for how we have served the least of these. There's a reward for that. He's going, hey, you guys, you didn't, even, you didn't believe in me and you didn't do this. You did believe in me and this is what you did. This is what Jesus is expecting of those who are sheep, those who are following him. What he expects is that we will take care of those who are hungry. We will take care of those who are thirsty. We will take care of those who need to be acclimatized. We take care of those who need clothing. We take care of those who are sick. So we're involved with health. And whatever else comes out of perhaps emergencies, in this case, even prison, those who serve, those who are the good deking, includes all of these. That's all I want to say. We often think that being a deacon means you get a key for the church and a code for the alarm. And what you do is you, all, you just open up the church. No, no, that's, that's not what a deacon does. That's what a key holder does. A deacon does a whole lot more than that. A deacon doesn't just worry about what temperature the air conditioner is. A deacon's going, who's, it, who's that air conditioner cooling? Who's that air conditioner making warm? Does the person need food? Does this person need clothing? Does the person need to be acclimatized in a new environment? Is the person in prison and needs to be visited? Is the person sick and needs to be cared for? So what do deacons do? I told you they take off the tray of the elders so that the elders can do what they need to do and they work with other teams who take off their tray. And so when you come to Sterling here in, on any given Sunday, you're going to see a group of people working outside over there and getting things ready for the smooth running of our services and for our ministry time over here. And when, you when they arrive here at you know, seven, quarter to seven on a Sunday morning, the, the chairs that are outside the, the picnic tables and the, the chairs around the cafe, they're not all there. They need to get packed out. Somebody packs them out. Somebody gets the coffee going. Somebody makes sure that the bathroom, the toilet facilities are clean. Somebody makes sure that the air conditioners are on. Someone makes sure that the lights are on. And if some are fused, that the right people know about that. They make sure that there's the right amount of chairs in the facility, that if we're expecting a very big service for some reason or whatever, that there are extra chairs in the wings that we can bring in. Or if we know that it's school holidays and it's a, a long weekend, that we can take out some chairs if we need to so that we don't feel like we're sitting like man alone in a big bank of chairs. But they don't do that all by themselves. There's a fantastic hospitality team who help and do that as well. 
And the hospitality team is taking off the tray of the deacons so the deacons can take off the tray of the elders so that we can do what God called us to do. So that by all of us serving, the message of Jesus can go out without speed bumps into the lives of those who come and worship here or come to explore here on Sundays. At Sterling, these are the four things that deacons look after. They look after the maintenance of facilities and vehicles. They look after mobilizing of people, especially when we have big events, whether that's serving the city for the Global Leadership Summit or whether that's a local event like our Celebration Sunday. They look after the money matters of the church, the financial health of the church. I don't know if you knew that, but if you're new to Sterling, we have a finance committee, and our staff, none of our staff have access to that, except Simone, who is our financial director. She obviously needs access to that, but our pastoral staff, we don't have any access to that. We don't know the codes for the bank accounts. Uh, we don't sign any of the checks. Uh, we don't touch the money. When the money goes out here, we don't count it. Uh, we, we have nothing to do with it. We have a great team that is made up of deacons. Um, Shane is the chairman of our, our finance committee. He's a deacon, and we have an elder in that team. And uh, our staff and the church is accountable to that team on how we spend. So once a month, the, the, the deacons will get together and there'll be a report back on how the finances are doing. And, and let's say that income is dri dipping a bit. So we just noticed from tithes and offerings that that income is dipping. We then go back to the staff and we say, guys, you just need to know that income is dipping. Make sure that your expenditure dips below the income line. Because it, we don't want this to happen. You don't want income to dip and then expenses to increase. You don't want that to happen. And sometimes the finance committee will say, actually, we've got some money. What are the spends we need to make? Then I can go back and go, all right, guys, what are the wishes? What are the dreams? What's the vision that we haven't been able to do? Let's get there. But it's always done in accountability. So we want to be accountable as a church, and that's what deacons do. They look after the financial well-being of the church. The last one is they look after the management of ministries. And what happens here on a Sunday is a good example of that, how they manage the different ministries, how they ensure that we're taking things off our children's pastor, Nikki, off her plate so that she can function better on that side. We're taking things off the elders' plates so that they can do what they need to do. And they're delegating to other teams so that they can do more um, in the life of the church. So to make sure that ministries function really well. 1 Timothy says that all of that is not going to go unnoticed, that all of that gets noticed by God. And chapter 3 and verse 13, a couple of different versions. Let me show you what it says about the deacon's reward. The authorized standard version translates the, the reward like this, that they will receive good standing and great boldness, great boldness in their faith. The English standard version of the Bible says good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith. We read from that version, so you might uh, recognize that. The NIV says an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith. And the Wycliffe, one of the oldest versions, says that they shall get a good degree to themselves and much trust in the faith. There's a reward for this. You know what's really interesting is that there's, there's no reward mentioned for elders. You know, it doesn't say that uh, for the elders. All it says about the elders, the last verse says, uh, they must be well thought of by outsiders so that they will not fall into disgrace into the snare of the devil. That's what it says about elders. But the deacons on the other side, it goes, hey, deacons, I just want you to know, if you serve well, you get a good... Uh, a good standing for yourselves and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Do you know that deacons, guys, if you're deacons, ladies, deacons in the service, God, God's promise to you is a reward for serving well. There's, there's a promise here, and the promise is a good reputation and great confidence in the faith. 
or as we're going to have a look at today, just focusing on how that brings assurance of our salvation. So let's talk about assurance. Let's talk about what assurance is and can I be sure of my faith? Do you know that all the religions of the world have this insecurity sec section to it? It's how can I be really sure whether I'm a Muslim, whether I'm Jewish, whether I'm a Hindu, whether I'm an atheist? There's a section that's mm, unsure. There's a, mm, I'm not so sure about that. But, but guys, I want you to know that Christianity is you can be sure. You can be sure of whether you're going to go to heaven or not. If, if you're a Muslim uh, or if you have a friend who's a Muslim, they'll remember the story in the Quran that says a righteous man dies and stands before Allah and a wicked man dies and he also stands before Allah. And Allah says to the, to the righteous man, he says, you depart from me, you go to hell. And he says to the wicked man, you come into paradise. And the confusing story is it's the will of Allah. He decides who goes in and he decides who doesn't. There's no way that you can be sure. Here's what the Bible says about salvation. It says this, if you confess with your mouth in Romans chapter 10 and verses 9 to 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, there's the component of confessing lordship, that Jesus will be the boss of my life. I'm going to follow him and be obedient to him. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you might be saved. You will be. You will. You will be saved. I have confessed Jesus with my mouth. I do believe in my heart. I am saved. Not I might be saved. I think. Therefore, I have, and I think I am. It's not. A, you are saved. So the message that got preached to the seventeen-year-old Matt should have gone something like this: If you're exploring faith and you're sensing God talking to you, that's Jesus revealing Himself to you. If you're feeling an encouragement in your heart because of what, what you're hearing tonight, and maybe if you're a Christian and you've, you've backslidden a little bit, Jesus is saying, I'm standing at the door knocking because that's for Christians. And I want you to know that if you acknowledge Jesus, he will acknowledge you. And I want you to know that if you will confess with your mouth today and believe in your heart, you will be saved. And if you've ever done that before, you are saved. So you can come and respond in worship if you've done that, and you can come and respond in surrender if you haven't. That's how it should have been preached. Because you can know. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. See, it's not just going through the motions, confess with your mouth, you know, give your tithe. Do, do, it's not just do all that stuff because we're not saved by works. It's confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, but also believing in your heart. And believing in your heart means I follow with repentance and I follow with submission and I follow with surrender. That's what that looks like. And that's what, that's what salvation is. Consider these scriptures. Hebrews chapter, chapter 10 tells us that we can approach, uh, we can draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith. 1 John 2 verse 3 says that, and by this we know that we have come to know him. 1 John 3 verse 19 says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth. 1 John 4 verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him. Not by this we think we abide in him. By this we think we can approach the throne of grace. By this we know with full assurance. Can you see the confidence in this? Can you see the confidence in approaching God? If you've confessed your sin and you believe in your heart, if you've confessed Christ as Lord, you are saved. You can know that you have been saved. 
The thing is that you look at that and you go, well, that's fantastic, Matt, but may I remind you of Matthew chapter 7, which says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will be saved, and then goes on to talk about the guys who prophesy in my name, cast out demons in my name, heal the sick in my name, and you're going, those guys are not Christians. How about me? I mean, I don't know. How many of you cast out a demon this week? I mean, like, I didn't. And, and prophesy this week, heal the sick this week, and we're not even doing that. And Jesus says, you know what? Some of you are doing that stuff. I don't even know you, and I'm not even doing that stuff. So my goodness, what does that mean for me? And so what my point is this, is that sometimes there's this theoretical knowledge that I can be sure, but how I feel is different. There's a disconnect from what I know and what I feel. I know that I'm supposed to know that I'm saved. I know that I'm supposed to know that that my salvation is secure in Christ, that he's forgiven me. I know, but I feel like I'm not forgiven. I feel like God's not really impressed with me. I feel like God doesn't know me. I know that I've confessed him as Lord, but I feel like on that day, he might say something different to me. Is it possible to truly know? Is it possible to truly be sure? Well, let's have a look at some scriptures that can encourage us and can tell us that you can be sure. Question one is, have you heard the gospel? Because the Bible says in, in verse 13 of Romans chapter 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you heard the gospel? Have you heard the gospel? The gospel is that in your sin, Jesus died on a cross and he came to earth. He came to earth, he died on a cross for your sin so that you can be saved. And if you call on Christ, you will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Faith consequently, verse 17 says, comes from hearing and hearing the words of Christ, the message of Christ. That's how faith comes. It comes from hearing Christ. So have you heard the gospel? Have you responded to the gospel? So have I heard it? Have I responded to it? How do I respond to the gospel? Well, confessing with my mouth and believing in my heart means that I've repented of my sin. I've made a decision not to do that. I've asked God to forgive me. It means putting my trust in Jesus and not in myself anymore. That I'm not going to try to continually prove to God how good I am because when I try to prove to God how good I am what I'm actually saying is thank you for Jesus for forgiving me of all my sin but I don't really need him going forward because I'm actually able to be good enough see and that's the big sin of all is that we believe that we are good enough saviors and we don't need Jesus so I can I can do all the good stuff salvation means I know I can never be good enough ever not today not tomorrow not yesterday I can never be good enough. That's why I need him. Have you repented of your sin? Have you put your trust in Jesus? Have you responded and been baptized, made a public confession of your faith, and have you received the Holy Spirit? That's what it means to, be, to respond to the gospel. Now, if you have responded to the gospel, then the following is true for you. One, that you have been forgiven. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, you have been forgiven. Not only your past sin, but your current sin and your future sin has been forgiven Two, this is what Isaiah says. It says in Isaiah 53 and verse 6, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. All your sin, you, your sin, all your sin was placed on Jesus when he died on the cross. All of it. Not the past sin and the present sin only. All of it. Past, present, future on Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, your sin is forgiven. All right, Jesus rises from the dead, and instead of your sin, God says, if you'll trust Jesus, 
He will give you the righteousness of Christ. And now when God looks at you, he doesn't see the sin of your life anymore. Instead, he sees the righteousness of Christ. You're hidden in the righteousness of Christ. That's amazing that I'm hidden in Christ. That's why Jesus goes to great pains to say, you will be in me and I will be in you and we will be in him because in Jesus, I'm hidden in the righteousness of Christ. God looks at me. Every time he looks at me, he doesn't look at me anymore and go, let me see the sin. I see the sin. I see the, no, that's been paid for. He sees his son who paid for the sin. That's what he sees. You're also a child of God. John chapter one and verse 12 says that if you have received him, you have the right to be called a child of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says you're a new creation and my favorite of all, Romans chapter 8 and verse 38 to 39, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ. Nothing. Neither sickness or death or angels or demons or height or depth, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. That is amazing. I want to impress on you what the Bible says about being sure of your faith. That when you leave here today, if you put your trust in Christ, you will leave here today and never again have to doubt whether you are saved. Friends, I want you to know the fact that the doubt comes is proof that there is faith. It's proof that there is faith. Because if there was no doubt, it wouldn't be faith. It would just be knowledge. See? Every time you doubt... Your response needs to be, I'm going to have faith in my faith and doubt the doubt instead of doubt my faith and have faith in my doubt. Get it? All right. So now let's just have a look at this link, the interesting link. Having spoken about deking and assurance, let me link them together and let's, uh, let's see the, the link between assurance and serving. Here's number one. Paul says to Timothy that those who serve well, now this is speaking specifically about deacons. However, deacons are not the only ones who serve. He says those deacons who serve well, this is what happens to them. But it's interesting as I've spoken to people and and some would come to me and say, Matt, I'm really struggling with assurance of salvation. And I go, well, tell me about your experience with Christ. Tell me how you're walking with Christ. They often will reply with things like, you know, I'm not spending time in God's word. I know I should be doing more. I don't really go to church. I know I should be doing more. I don't really pray. I know I should be doing more. I'm not really involved in a ministry. I know I should be doing more. Those who are involved in ministries are praying, are seeking God, are reading the scriptures. They're going, no, no, they have way less crisis of belief in terms of assurance of salvation. Those who are serving and are involved, they seem to have more assurance of salvation. And this scripture points out why. Because those who serve well, gain an excellent standing and great confidence, boldness, or assurance in their faith. Why is that? Why, what is the link between serving? Well, firstly, serving mirrors Christ's example. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that Christ came and humbled himself to the point of death, taking on the nature of a servant. It mirrors Christ. When you serve, you mirror Christ. You reflect what he's come to do. And so you get an assurance of your faith because you're doing what your Savior did. That's what he did, and now I'm doing it. But that's not all. Secondly, serving displays obedience. Romans chapter 12 and verse 11 says, Do not be slothful, love that word, slothful in zeal. I don't know how they chose some of the words in the the English Standard Version of here. I don't know, when when did you last use a word like that, slothful? Imagine speaking to an employee, and I just need to talk to you about, you've really been slothful. Um, 
don't be slothful in your zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. I mean, just serve the Lord. It, it's a command. Serve the Lord. Let me serve him. And, and when I'm serving him, I'm being obedient to him. It displays obedience. And the more I'm obedient to God, because God works like this, God gives you a little bit, you respond. He gives you a little bit more, you respond in obedience. He gives you a little bit more, you respond in obedience. If you want great assurance of your faith, the more you're serving, the greater assurance you will get in your faith. The more God's going to trust you with more, the more you're going to respond with more. God's not going to trust you with a lot if you're not responding and being obedient with a lot. Thirdly, serving someone opens a door to getting to know them. So when we serve Christ, we get to know him more. Let, let me try and illustrate it like this. If you are a secretary or a PA, um, or if you have a secretary or a PA, the secretary or a PA, the PA type of secretary, has almost full access to her boss's office, his boss's office, to the desk, sometimes the emails, uh, sometimes bank accounts, depend how much that person needs to, uh, the role that that person needs to fill. When you serve in that role, as you're serving a person, you get to know that person more and more. You're seeing their emails coming through. You're responding the way they would respond. You know what's on their desk. You know where the things are. It reaches a point when you've had a relationship for a very long time that you're no longer phoning the boss asking him or her, where's that document on your desk? They're phoning you going, where did I put that document on my desk? Right? Same way, when you serve Christ, the more you serve him, the more you get to know him. The more you serve in Christ, the more you know what his will is. The more you're responding like he would respond. The more you get to know him, the more you respond like him, the more assured you become of your faith. Because he's showing you more of himself. And the more you get to know him. Serving is also investing. Matthew 6 verse 21 goes like this. Serving equals investing. Because investing equals where your treasure is. Where your treasure is equals where your heart is. You follow that all the way back up? Therefore, where your treasure is, is where you serve. Where I use my time, where I use my talents and my treasure, that shows who I'm serving. Jesus says you can't serve two masters. You'll either love the one or hate the other. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. It goes down to serving every single time. The more I serve Jesus, the more I'm investing my heart into Christ and my faith. That's why the person who serves well gets great assurance of their faith. Because they've invested much into their relationship with Christ. They've invested much into their faith. Therefore, they gain great boldness and confidence and assurance of faith. But not only that, serving is worship. And friends, I feel like this is the most important one of all. This is the most important link because serving is worship. And often for us, serving is not worship. And so we have to change the way we approach serving. We need to move away. For some of us, serving might be a chore. It's, oh, you know, it's got to got to do this over here you know perhaps today you drove your spouse here or came early with your spouse because they're involved in some ministry or the other they're in the children's ministry hospitality ministry worship team whatever it is and you're like i have to wait here the whole time for them no no you're driving them here is serving christ can you flip it around that's my worship i'm worshiping christ the bible says whatever you do do it as if you're doing it for christ we serve him ultimately, whatever we do. And so the, sometimes it feels like, you know, you're busy serving and everybody left. And you're the guy who got left with a bill. You're like, where did everybody go? 
remember one time in a church that I was serving and we, uh, we had this massive youth hall and then there was this, this room up at the top. We called it the upper room for obvious reasons. It's up. And, uh, and one time we went into there. We go do the devotions every Friday night in this upper room. And uh, we went up there, closed the door, and I heard some noise outside. And there was often noise outside. Some kids would come in late. And, and when we came out, the, the, the roof, which looked similar to this, um, kind of suspended ceiling, they'd taken basketballs and kicked basketballs through the roof, right? I mean, the roof of the facility had been smashed. It looked like you'd taken shotguns and just blown the roof to pieces. All over the floor, pieces. And I phoned my, my colleague. I was like, oh, I just, it's bad. It's bad. I need, we need, and he was like, ah, sorry, not coming. And my team left, and I'm sitting there all by myself. I'm just going, do, do people really expect me to clean all of this up? to fix this roof on my own. You know, and I just, I, we can't do this over here. I felt like I'd been left with the bill. I felt like we just had a Christmas meal at the most expensive restaurant and everyone's like, hey, I just need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> and there I'm sitting. Uh, needing, I know I've got a lot of washing up to do after this over here. Cut a long story short, we decided we'd approach it and deal with it the next day and two of our other leaders came and helped me and we stuck the roof together with a hot melt gun. Yeah, we did. We stuck the roof together. It took us the whole afternoon. What was so interesting is our church had a prayer meeting um, on the Saturday morning, and, um, and there was this kind of tension between the youth ministry and, and one of the elderly guys in our church. And so on the Saturday morning, he came into the hall, he unlocked, and he checked the mess. We just left everything where it was. We didn't sweep up anything because when you're gluing the stuff together like puzzles, you need to know that tile that's lying here on the floor came from there. So we just left it. Um, and then he started telling everybody. So by the time Sunday morning rolled by, everyone in the church that was over 40 had been contacted and told what the youth ministry did. Except on Saturday afternoon, we came together with scaffolding and hot milk guns, and we glued the whole thing back together. The whole, like, I really need you to get the, the, the gravity of this. It wasn't one tile, okay? It was like 80 tiles that had been smashed to pieces. I went past the church a couple of months back or years back and our roof is still glued together in there. But the church arrived for worship on Sunday morning and, and, and all the people who'd been contacted didn't come in the main sanctuary. They just came in the back because they wanted to see what the youth had done. And when they got there, it was all fine. And they're like, this is, oh, well, what's wrong? There's nothing wrong with the roof because you can't see the joints, you know, from the ground. You can't see those joints where we glued it back together again. And they're like, oh, wow, it's just, it looks wonderful. And then they tried to find out what happened, and they found out that some people had come in. Do you know that I could do nothing wrong? There was nothing you could do wrong as a youth ministry. That kind of barrier thing, it ended that day. Uh, it just, it was finished. You know, I could ask, so guys, we're going to play rugby in the youth hall. Okay, go, just go play rugby in the youth hall. That's, it's all right, you know. Um, yeah, we were thinking of like bow and arrows and shooting apples on people's heads. Okay, no problem. Just go ahead and do that. Sometimes you see it as a chore and you feel like you're the guy who got the bill, but that's not the way it should be. It shouldn't be a headache. You also shouldn't feel like that serving is, I serve because one day the church is going to pay me back. This is a debt that the church will pay me back one day because the church doesn't pay you back for your service. Uh, if you're serving just to be paid back by the church or to be paid back by the senior pastor or to be paid back by the deacons or the elders or whoever, if that's a reason for serving, you should just stop serving straight away because Jesus said if you receive your, serve, your, your, your reward here, you're not going to get your reward there in heaven. The reason why we serve 
is because we want to honor Christ. That's why we serve. And so me serving is not so I can one day turn around to the church and say, I want to just remind you of me gluing the ceiling back together. That, that's not what it's about. That day when they went, hey, well done, guys. You know what happened that day? What was a reward in heaven just disappeared because we received it here. The pat on the back, we just lost something in eternity that day. Gone. All right? You don't do it to get payback. But we do it because it's a joy. We serve because it's a joy. And when you serve with a worship heart, it becomes a joy. It becomes a joy to know I get to meet new people serving in the cafe. It becomes a joy to know I get to have great conversations with 10-year-olds because I tell them about Jesus. It becomes a joy to know I'm here from 8 o'clock until 10 o'clock at night worshiping and practicing so that God's people can worship well on Sunday morning. You know why it's a joy? Because as servants, we serve a servant king. Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, Jesus says, I've come not to be served, but to serve. This kingdom that you're a part of, the king of the kingdom is a servant. And so the subjects will be servants too. And so if you go, I'm not going to be a servant in this kingdom, what you're actually saying is, I don't support the king of this kingdom. And we've just seen an example of that across the pond that have just had some elections this year, and you've seen, or this last week, and you've seen over the news that there's a ton of people who are protesting in the streets of America. They're protesting and they're chanting, not my president. There's acts of civil disobedience going on, not my president. But in the same way, there are people who are going, this is my president, and they feel great joy, and they're going, man, I'm so glad that this guy's my president because he speaks on behalf of me, and he supports me, and this is my dream for my country. Others are going, it's not my dream for this country. I didn't support that person. In fact, not my president. But you need to decide, is Jesus going to be your king or not? Because if Jesus is going to be your king, it means I serve like him. Because in this kingdom, the king's a servant. Therefore, the subjects are too. And the more you serve, the more you invest your heart, the more God shows you more, the greater confidence you have in your faith, the greater assurance you have in your faith, the greater boldness you have in your faith. There's a deep connection between serving and assurance of salvation. If you've been struggling with assurance of salvation, perhaps it is because you're not serving or when you are serving, you're not serving as worship. You're still serving as payback. Maybe that's what it is. I want to encourage you this morning, if you are somebody who's been exploring Jesus for a long time, maybe today's the day where you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and you commit your life to him. Maybe if you've crossed that line of faith, today's the day where you just go, Jesus, thank you that I'm secure in your hands, that nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. Maybe that's you today. But whatever the case, as we close out the service now, and I give you an opportunity to respond to Christ, if you respond in either of those ways, one is, God, I want to give you my life today, and I want to cross that line of faith. Two is, God, thank you. Thank you for this great assurance of faith. Today, I choose to doubt my doubt and have faith in my faith. That's you. Then I want to encourage you to share that with somebody and acknowledge Jesus before men. Tell somebody, someone who knows Jesus and who loves Jesus, tell them, this, this is what I did today. Gave my life to Christ. Or, hey, I just want you to know, today I've made a decision that I'm going to, I'm going to have faith in my faith and I'm going to doubt my doubt. And to make that stronger, I need to find a place to serve. Will you help me? Right? Let's bow our heads and we'll close out in prayer. Let me give you an, just a moment to respond. What has God been saying to you? 
as he's been revealing stuff to you, would you respond to him? Maybe he's revealing to you your, your slothfulness, this laziness to get involved. Maybe he's rebuked you today. Maybe he's encouraged you today to come and confess that he is Lord and repent of your sin. Maybe he's brought conviction in your life. Maybe today he's just reminded you again of the joy of serving him. And maybe he has just whispered in your soul today, hey, those things that nobody saw, I saw them. Don't worry about the pat on the back. I've got your reward with me sitting right next to me, right here in heaven. You responded to him, maybe in gratitude or thanks this morning. Let me give you a moment. Father, we thank you that we can be sure of our faith. Thank you, God, that being sure of our faith means that we want to serve you. And Thank you that as we serve you, you make us more bold and sure of our faith. And so it continues that we want to serve you and you make us more sure of our faith. God, I pray in Jesus' name that for those who are sitting on that line, wondering about exploring you further or just giving their lives to you. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that today would be the day that they call on the name of the Lord, that they confess with their mouth and believe in their hearts. They cross that line of faith and are saved today. God, for the rest of us as we continue and as the enemy would come and bring thoughts of doubt, I pray, Jesus, that you would remind us of your great power, that we would be a church that once we cross that line of faith, we would know for sure that our salvation is secure in you and nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. In Jesus' name, we affirm this. Together we said amen. Amen. God bless everybody.